What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the show. Today, we have another Q&A episode. Thank you to everybody who asked a question. You guys know the drill. I'll go through as many as I can in 30 minutes or so until I have that people-pleaser thing kick in and I decide to answer all of them. Um, Cool. Let's jump into it. First question. Does muscle growth require actual muscle squeezing or do some movements automatically squeeze in air quotes? Sometimes when I do heavier weights, I seem to struggle to keep form and focus on squeezing. It's hard to explain. Uh, just wondering how important that is. Thanks. Cool. So it's a great question because I think a lot of times when people get into lifting or they have a personal trainer, and I know this because I'm having a immediate flashback to my time on the floor, um, there's a lot of emphasis on where should I be feeling this? You should be squeezing this. You know, it's almost like you're the one doing the work, like as far as like contracting the muscle. And yeah, technically speaking, you are the one doing the work. You are the one contracting the muscle, but you're almost letting the muscles do what they do. And so to try and keep this simple, I don't cue people or instruct people to focus on squeezing anything almost ever. You know, there are certain circumstances where I'm like, hey, when you get to this point in the short position, maybe we focus on squeezing. Maybe it's the lockout on a leg extension or the top part of an incline curl, whatever. Um, Mostly going to be exercises that are hardest in that short position where there is some uh, uh, squeezing, I guess, going on. But 99.999% of the time, here's what you need to focus on. You need to be focused on doing the exercise in a way that makes biomechanical sense. What I mean is just doing the exercise with good technique. That's it. Um, If it's a leg press or an RDL or a lunge or a curl or a press or a row or a pull down, just do the movement the way it's supposed to be done, focus on the technique the execution and the muscles will do what they do. I know it's a, you know, it sounds simple of like, they'll just figure it out. They will. That's what they do. If you're holding a barbell in your hands and you send your hips back, right? You hip hinge, you have a slight knee bend, you push your butt back, 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 back. You keep the bar nice and close to your body. Guess what is going to get a stretch? Your glutes and your hams. And when you stand up in that position with good technique, guess what did that? Your glutes and your hams. And there's no necessary amount of squeezing or focus or intent. And we have research where we have two groups. One of them focuses on internal cues where they're focusing on the actual contraction of the bicep, whether that's focusing on bringing origin to insertion or they're holding on to their bicep, stuff where they're focused on the actual contraction of the bicep. And then another group where they're focused on moving from point A to point B, actually moving the weight from point A to point B with good technique. And you know, I'm not going to pretend that I have the exact results of these studies, but from what we've seen, it either A, doesn't matter, or the group of the external cues of actually focusing on the activity, the movement that's happening, um, um, performs better or sees more muscle growth, or I would say it doesn't matter, so don't waste your energy on focusing on squeezing anything. Focus on performing the movement with good technique. And that's a really important one because I think a lot of people get lost in the, where am I feeling this? Should I be squeezing? When am I supposed to be squeezing? I don't want you to squeeze anything. I don't want you to, I don't want you to do that. I just want you to do the movement in the way that makes biomechanical sense that puts, I mean, I, it, we're over, over complicating it here, but I think it's important to understand. Like what you want to do is you want to put the muscles that you want to work in a position where they can work and where they will do the work and where they are the best solution to the problem. I guess for hypertrophy, you can make an argument where they're the worst solution to the problem or that they they lose leverage or that they are in disadvantageous positions, but whatever, we're, we're 
trending down a rabbit hole and it's way too early. It's like 6.40, what is 7, 7.15 here? So way too early for that. Okay. Oh, next question. Give me one sec. I just logged out by accident. Okay. Next question here. Um, can noticeable muscle gain be made in a bulk span of 12 to 16 weeks? Wow, so funny you asked this question because I'm going through this scenario with a couple of clients and they've said to me, hey, Jordan, um, you know, I've heard you say things like, hey, if you don't bulk for at least six months, like it's not worth it, you know? Um, and, and I'd like to clarify my position on that. And it's kind of, um, kind of, kind of comes back around to this question of like, can you see noticeable muscle gain in a bulk of 12 to 16 weeks? Here's the deal. You will gain muscle in direct proportion to the length of time that you're in a bulk and the weight that you gain, right? If you're in a bulk for a long time, you gain a lot of weight, you build a lot of muscle. If you're in a bulk for a very short amount of time, short amount of, of weight gain, you're not going to gain a lot of muscle, right? So it's all proportionate. It's not like, it's not like, hey, at the six month mark is when you actually start to really build muscle. No, you're building muscle all the time in the same, not in the same proportion, but for argument's sake, we can think of it that way. It's like your first month in a bulk, your fourth month in a bulk, it's all equally productive. And so what you're trying to do is stack a lot of those months together to build an appreciable amount of muscle. And so I have clients who are, who are afraid of, who might hear me say something like, hey, you got to bulk for at least six months or it's not worth it. And they think, oh, that means I really got to gain a lot of weight. That means I got to bulk for like a year, 18 months, two years, and I have to gain a significant amount of weight and I don't really want to do that. And they have come back to me and said, well, what if I bulk for four months, don't gain as much weight, let's say between four and eight pounds over that time, uh, one to two pounds a month, something like that. And then I cut and then I do that again. And then I cut and I do that again. I think that's super productive. And so if you're going to do, like my position is if you're just trying to do one bulk, right, and you do a six-month bulk, at the end of that six-month bulk, and then you cut, let's say, so you, let's say you were 150 pounds, you bulk to 160, then you cut back to 150. Presumably, you've built muscle and lost fat. I don't think in one bulk for six months, you're going to look all that different, right? So that's my position. If, if we're just talking about in a vacuum, one bulk, yeah, I don't think six months is going to dra dr dramatically, drastically, radically change your physique. But if we're talking about uh, a ratio of time, right? So if over the next two years, you do four-month bulk, two-month cut, four-month bulk, two-month cut, four-month bulk, like, or you did, so what is that? That's that's spending twice as long in a bulk as a cut. Like, is that any better than being like, oh, I did eight months in a bulk and then four months in a cut and eight months in a bulk? I, I, mathematically speaking, at the end of those two scenarios, I think people look identical. So if you like, you know, only having to go up four to eight pounds at a time, then cutting down four to eight pounds at a time, instead of something like what I've experienced in my life, which is I bulked for about two years, I gained about 30 pounds, um, and it was the most productive period of muscle growth I've ever had, and then I cut for maybe four months or so, um, could you have split up the 24 months in a bulk and the four months in a cut? Could you have split them up differently where it's like six months and then one month, six months and one month? You could have, and I think I look the same at the end of that ratio split as well. Um, it's about what works for you practically. And so the question is, can noticeable muscle gain be made in a bulk of span of 12 to 16 weeks? I don't think so because you're, you're, we're just talking about one single bulk and you use the word noticeable. But that's not a, to discourage anyone because you might do that, cut a little bit, do it again, cut a little bit, do it again, cut a little bit. And then at the end of that, over a larger period of time, yeah, totally. Um, and I might be wrong, by the way. If you're a complete novice and you do, you know, four months in a small surplus, I think you will notice a difference, totally. 
Me, I don't think I would notice much of a difference. I might notice more filling out of my muscles with glycogen, better pumps in the gym, a little bit better strength and better energy, totally. But do I look radically different? I don't think so. Um, and 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 even if I'm wrong, even if that's, you could see gains in that amount of time, like noticeably, like I just want people to buckle up for a, for, or, or buckle up for a longer period of time or lower their expectations and how fast this happens. That That's my general uh, that's what I want, would like your general take home to be. It's like when I'm talking about going to a bulk, I'm talking about building muscle. I want you to think, oof, that happens slow. And if I really want to see some meaningful shit, then I probably want to do that for a longer period of time. I think that that's just generally what I want. If, if you, Listen, if you do it for four months and you're like, wow, I, I noticed a difference, that, that's great. That's a pleasant surprise. But I, I would want to lower your expectations and then be pleasantly surprised if you're wrong. You know. Cool, next question. In swaps, can you add form videos? Um, I'm guessing this person's in my group and is saying in the swap section, can you add form videos? So those all, everything that is in my group program, I'd say 75% to 95% of exercises will have multiple swap options. The only time I don't put a swap option is like, if it's a machine in my gym program that I know you have, like a leg extension or a hamstring curl, or leg press, like those are probably the only three mandatory things that we have. But even those might have swaps, you know, leg press might have swaps, squats, split squat, whatever. Um, so almost everything in the program has multiple swap options if you go to the bottom and the exercise description. How I've written those swaps, usually verbatim, there are form videos if you look them up in the library. And so you can click the three dots at the top right-hand corner and you can click swap and then you can type in the exercise library and it's a keyword search, which is really nice. Um, you can type the swap that I've written and you can look it up. And and all of the things that, have, that I've listed as swaps, they all have coinciding form videos. I will never list something on there that doesn't have a form video that I've done. Um, and just while we're on this kind of, you know, non sequitur topic of my group program. You can also just browse the exercise library. So if you look at the bottom of the app, you can click on the, I think it's like a book. It looks like a library and then you can swipe over to exercises and then you can see a whole list of exercises and you can search them by keyword. If you want to look up lunge or squat or rear delt or row or something and just see all of the things that are there, you can always browse and everything has a form video. Just click the little I, the circle with the little I, and it will pull up the form video. Cool. Next question. Soreness from working out. I know it's not a great indicator, but anything to share on this topic? Oh my God. I have, I, you guys are hitting on some stuff that I've just been talking about with clients. Okay. Um, and the reverse. If you're working hard to failure, but no soreness, uh, is anything to read into? Oh my God, it's so funny that you're asking this. Um, here, here's an interesting thing. I, you know, whatever, we swing on pendulums all the time in the fitness industry and soreness is no different. People will shit on soreness all the time. So, oh, you don't need to be sore to have a good workout and just because you're sore doesn't mean it's a good indicator. And, and, and those two statements are true. You don't need to be sore to make gains and just because you're sore doesn't tell me anything. Now, the, let's start with the just because you're sore, it doesn't tell me anything. People are like, just because you're sore, it doesn't tell me anything. You could run a marathon and your legs would be really sore, but that doesn't mean you made gains. Or like, I could punch you in the leg and you'd be sore and that doesn't mean that you'd made gains. Like, yeah, you, you, you freaking idiot. Those are just like total out of the box extreme examples. Like nobody asking this question is thinking about that example. Nobody asking this question is like, oh, I'm sore for my run. Okay, 
Maybe there's someone out there that is thinking, I'm sore from my run. Does that mean I made gains? If that's you, no, you didn't. Um, if you went running and your legs are sore, that did not cause hypertrophy. Now, now if you're a complete novice, it did. Um, if you're complete, if you if you go from sedentary and you start running, your muscle you will build muscle. Fact. Um, we take sedentary individuals, we put them on the treadmill, and they just walk, and we see that they build muscle. So, okay, in that bubble, yes. But I, I always crack up at this because, yeah, if you it, just because you're if someone's like, hey, if someone stopped me on the street and they're like, hey, Jordan, my legs are sore from my workout yesterday. Total random person. My legs are sore from my workout yesterday. Did I make gains? I don't know. I don't know what you did, right? So I, that that to me isn't enough. It's not a sufficient piece of information for me to tell you if you if you made gains, right? You could have run a marathon and be reasonably trained and you wouldn't have built muscle. I could have punched you in the leg. You know, you could have done, um, you know, a Zumba class or something, right? Your legs are really sore. Doesn't mean you made gains. But dude, once you are doing logical hypertrophy training, once you are doing resistance training, Soreness is is a pretty darn good piece of information. Again, it's not sufficient to say you made gains, and the absence of it isn't sufficient to say you didn't make gains. But you know, I, I this this just always cracks me up because like people people like make a make their whole identity on social media about talking about this. We're like, yeah, if, you, if you're sore, it doesn't mean you made gains. It's like, yeah, but like, soreness isn't an important proxy. It is. It is important. It's important once you know that you're doing. The you're in the ballpark of logical hypertrophy training, which is a very low bar. We're just talking about resistance training. If you're just lifting weights, then I then soreness becomes an, a very helpful piece of information. Um, and so, yeah, soreness does not by itself tell me if you made gains. But dude, if I have a client or I have a group program member and they're telling me about their general response from soreness, like that's helpful data. And that is going to help me it's a piece of the puzzle, not by itself, but it's a piece of the puzzle that tells me some information about how hard they're training, whether or not they're making gains. Um, and so just fucking throw that out the window. Like, you don't need to be sore to make gains. It's like, yeah, okay. Like just because you're sore doesn't mean you made gains. But like the person who did the Zumba class, prop, I mean, you know, okay, yeah, okay. All right, I don't wanna be a dick. There are probably people out there that just learned that if you're sore from Zumba, you didn't make gains. If you're sore from running, you probably didn't make gains. And again, if you're a brand new to training, you probably did, but still not that meaningful. But dude, if you are doing resistance training, right? Once we've narrowed down what you're doing and what caused the soreness, right? As something that would lead to gains, right? Something that would lead to hypertrophy, then soreness is an important piece of data. It's not the most important thing in the entire world, but it's way more helpful than you probably thought before I started answering this question. Um, and so, yeah, whether you're sore or not is a piece of data that can help us, uh, you know, it's a proxy for how hard you worked. It, it is, again, not a requirement. It's also not, you know, uh, if you don't have it doesn't mean you didn't make gains. That's all true. But dude, if you're never, if you're doing logical resistance training, right? So we've narrowed down the, what you're doing to logical hypertrophy training. We're not talking about marathon training. We're talk, not talking about Zuba. We're not talking about spin class. We're talking about lifting. If you are lifting weights, now you've put yourself in a situation where that piece of data, soreness, becomes more valuable. Um, okay, all right, stop rambling. Hopefully everybody gets that. Um, it's, it's pretty simple. If you're never, ever, 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 even the least bit sore, and that's a pretty low bar because most people are a little sore and they say they're not. 
You know, like most people are like, yeah, I'm not sore. And then I'm like, okay, flex your quad as hard as you can or do a, a heavy set of goblet squats. And they're like, oh yeah, 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 I'm a little sore. And so like most people think to be sore means to be crippled. No, we're talking about the whole gamut here, the whole spectrum. Um, you know, being a little sore is to me in a binary sense, you're sore, right? We just want some feedback, some slash most of the time. And not all muscles will experience soreness in the same way. It also depends on what you're doing in terms of programming, challenging, you know, stretching a muscle under load will cause more muscle damage, will lead to more soreness. You're gonna get more sore from RDLs than you will from lying hamstring curls, for example. You're gonna get more sore from, um, you know, an, an incline curl where the bicep is in a lengthened position to let's say a 90 degree preacher curl where it's in a short position. Um, you'll get more soreness from a lunge or a split squat in your quads than you will from a leg extension that challenges a short position. And so it does matter what you do and, you know, but interestingly enough, like we also know that challenging muscles at longer lengths is better for hypertrophy. So all of a sudden, like the thing that makes me sore also is a thing that's better for hypertrophy. And, and that's, in my opinion, not, a, um, the, that's not random. That's not by random chance, all right? The thing that is making me more sore also happens to be better for muscle growth. Um, and so if you're never, ever, 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 even 1% sore, then all I would say is I bet you could see better gains from doing more. And more might mean more sets, more might mean closer to failure, more might mean better exercise selection, you know, more optimal for hypertrophy stuff. Um, but what I just said is I bet you could see better gains from more. That does not mean you're not making gains, right? It doesn't mean you're not making gains at a rate that you're totally fine with. It. All I can say is I, there's, it seems like because you are not sore at all that there's room to do more and you'd still recover from it. That's all. It doesn't mean you should. It doesn't mean the gains, it doesn't mean you're not making gains. It doesn't mean that the rate of gains you're making isn't sufficient for you. It just means that there, you might be able to survive more training and, and maybe see and probably see better gains. Now, if you're always sore and you're always crippled, and I would say the most important terminology to learn is overlapping soreness. If you're if you do legs on Monday and Thursday and your leg training on Monday leaves you so sore for your leg training on Thursday that you can't perform, right? Performance being that kind of gold standard of whether or not you've recovered, that's where I draw the line. And, and I'm, I don't mean it in a one-off because this is gonna happen to you sometimes. Sometimes you're gonna fucking crush it on your RDLs and your, your glute bridges and your reverse lunges on Monday. And I'm uh, yeah, your glutes are still gonna be sore on Thursday. They're still gonna be sore on Friday, maybe even Saturday. And that's gonna happen sometimes. I, I don't want anybody overreacting to these acute moments. We're talking about longer term things that happen over the long term. Um, and so if you're having chronic overlapping soreness such that it's inhibiting you from being able to progress on your lifts the next time you have to work those muscles, again, it's happening frequently, consistently. Yeah, okay, maybe you're doing too much. And when I say doing too much, maybe you recover like shit. You don't sleep well, you don't eat enough, you don't hydrate. Um, it's a balance of what you're doing and how you're recovering. So you're doing too much. What that really means is you're doing too much given the recovery variables that you have in place. And so that might mean, okay, maybe your training needs to stay the same, but you need to start sleeping eight hours, or it means you need to bring your training down to match where your recovery variables are. In any case, those two, those need to be aligned. Holy crap, I've been doing this for, for 20 minutes. We've done three, we've done four questions. Who do I think I am trying to get through all these? Uh, okay, I would love to get an idea about strength levels, newbie slash advanced or after a year. I really don't know 
what you mean. Uh, get an idea about strength levels for a newbie at advanced or after a year. I don't know what that means. I, 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 I don't see much merit in, I don't know if this is what you're asking, but I don't see much merit in being like, hey, you should be able to, after one year, you should be able to deadlift half, you know, one times your body weight for eight reps. If that's the kind of stuff that we're talking about, I, I don't see any merit in that. Like, just fucking run your own race, man. Just do your own thing. Just get on a program, stay with it, learn how to lift, you know, work on getting close to failure, work on progressing. These like benchmarks, again, I've talked about goal setting on this podcast a million times, can be positive, right? Setting these sort of ben- benchmarks can keep you motivated. I know Mark Carroll has a couple benchmarks. One of my clients sent it to me and we've talked about, hey, these sorts of benchmarks um, are random, they are made up, but that doesn't mean that they can't be useful if you're in the right headspace about them and if these sorts of things keep you motivated. Um, but in the same breath, you know, some of those benchmarks were like one rep max. It was like, I, I love Mark, by the way. Mark's been on the podcast. Mark is a gem. Mark is a great person in the fitness space. So this is not a shot at him at all, but let's just talk about it. So his benchmarks were like, hey, you should be able to do one chin up. And I might botch this, what exactly they are. I think it was like one chin up deadlift two times your body weight, squat 1.5 times your body weight, glute bridge three times your body weight. I think that it was along those lines. But when we're talking about training for a one rep max, and so someone sends that to me and they're like, hey, I wanna do these things. It's like, okay, to, to train to get really strong for one rep is divergent from the type of training you do to build muscle or to build maximum muscle. And so are you okay with that? Like we can, it's a conversation I have with my clients. Like we can train for these benchmarks if you want, but that will mean sacrificing on some level, some amount of muscle growth because powerlifting and bodybuilding are just different things. If you wanna train for maximal strength, that is different than training for maximal hypertrophy. And, And it's not like they're divergent enough that, there's no crossover. Of course, there's crossover. And you can do power building, right? Where we do a little bit of both, totally. But just understanding that like, one, those benchmarks are totally made up. There's no like, you know, uh, CDC or like research studies of like, after a year, you should be here, uh, you know? And if you wanna train for one rep max, kind of strength goals, you know, I prefer if you're gonna set those goals, if your goal is hypertrophy and building muscle, set hypertrophy and building muscle goals, you know, maybe instead of like deadlift two times your body weight for one rep, maybe it's RDL, your body weight for a set of 10, right? And that is way more in line. Training for that is way more uh, in line with training for hypertrophy. So I don't know if that was your question. Hopefully there was something in there that was helpful. Next question. Why do we want to try to bias muscles in the short position if length of position is better? So uh, basically training muscles at longer lengths and, and, um, having tension when the muscle is stretched is better for hypertrophy than uh, biasing the short position where, where if you had the choice between between putting the tension where the muscle is stretched and putting the tension where the muscle is contracted, it would be better for hypertrophy in a one set, single set vacuum to put it in the lengthened position, right? And so if we were to, you know, there's a reason I ranked glute bridge as the sixth best glute exercise, because it doesn't give you a lot of tension in a stretch position, and the first five did. And so by definition, it can't rank that high because it doesn't give you a lot of tension in a lengthened position. Now, her question is, oh, didn't mean to give anything away there, but uh, yeah, her question um, is, well, if that's the case, right? If challenging muscles at longer lengths when muscles are stretched is better than challenging them when they are contracted or shortened, 
then why do that at all? That's essentially the question. Um, couple of reasons here. I'm trying to think of, so I can give you the textbook answer, but I want to give you the Jordan answer. Why would I do it? Um, for me, a couple of things. I want to balance the textbook answer with my answer. Number one thing that comes to mind, and not ranking these in any order, is orthopedic reasons. Um, if you shorten one muscle, you lengthen its antagonist. And so let's like the shortened, the sh- a shortened bicep is a lengthened tricep. A shortened quad is a lengthened hamstring. A shortened, uh, you know, calf is a lengthened tib, whatever. Um, and I think it's important to expose muscles to, um, to a full range of motion on both sides of that equation from a stabilizing role and from a working role. There's, again, we don't have amazing research on this, so I'm definitely taking a flyer on this, but I'm betting there's some orthopedic benefit for getting a muscle strong throughout its entire contractile range, so to speak. I bet you there's some orthopedic benefit to challenging muscles in the short position. And orthopedic benefit for me, man, that's really freaking important right now. I want to be doing this for as long as possible. You know what? I, you know my shtick of like, I want to be physically autonomous till I'm 100. You know, I, I, I want to get off the toilet for as long as possible. I don't want knee pain, shoulder pain, elbow pain, any of that shit. And so if there's an orthopedic benefit for challenging the short position, I want to do it. The second is I'll take a flyer on some regional hypertrophy benefits at this point. I think that the research has shown that, man, lengthened partials might be better than full range of motion. But I won't break down the whole study right now, but the leg extension the, the leg extension study that was one of these like hallmark studies of length and position partial work, um, you know, gives a little bit of insight that challenging the short position might also be a good idea for regional hypertrophy. We might have certain parts of a muscle that are more active at certain parts of the range. And so if you wanted to grow the biggest quad, you might have parts of your quad that are more active when when the muscle is shortened and other parts of the muscle that are more active during other parts of the range of motion. And so I'll take a flyer on that. It, it, the length and partial research continues to load up and, and continues to challenge what I just said, but I'm still holding out. Um, And the last thing from a Jordan standpoint is that, man, if we only ever work the length of position, then we kind of cut out a bunch of exercises and training gets a little bit more boring. We don't have as much variation. Um, Training the short position could be fun. You get better pumps in the short position. Um, You know, you don't get as sore. You can do more sets. You can train closer to failure. Um, and, And taking away all short position would just leave us with a whole lot less stuff to do. And I think that would be more boring. Now, there are other textbook answers, like, which I would contest to some of this stuff, or like, there's metabolic benefits, right? We see more metabolic benefits in terms of nutrient partitioning benefits, challenging the short position. You get less sore, so you can do more volume. I, I don't know necessarily the utility of that, if we're being totally honest. I don't see that as like a inherent good. Um, and so, yeah, you're right. I think that a good hypertrophy program biases more towards the length of position. But for me, for three main reasons, orthopedic benefits, again, I'll say potential, potential orthopedic benefits, potential regional hypertrophy benefits, and just straight up variation, having more exercises in your arsenal that you don't get freaking bored doing the same exact length and work all the time. I'm going to have roughly 25% of my my programming to challenge the short position. Um, Again, that's super roughly. Anywhere from 50 to 75% I'm going to have in the length of position on average, again, on average. Um... And depending on, you know, if it's a one-on-one client, I might skew that ratio based on feedback. Cool.
Wow, I'm blowing this. We're already at half hour. There's just no chance. Um, all right, push it. We'll do a couple more. Crap. Should I cherry pick some good questions here? Um, hi, I'm not going to do that. Hi, is it really a big difference between steps and dedicated cardio and longevity and health? Um, so when you say steps, let's just say you mean walking. And when you say dedicated cardio, let's say you mean doing cardio that's faster than walking. And so is there a meaningful benefit between just walking and having cardio where you get your heart rate up higher? So we're just talking about a spectrum here. All the way on the low intensity side is steps. All the way on the high intensity is sprinting. Is the question, is there a noticeable increase in health benefit from doing only steps to having mixed mixed intensity levels by sometimes doing middle intensity, moderate intensity work, sometimes doing higher intensity work versus just walking. I would say there is. Um, you use the word really a big difference. I, I don't know. It depends what the word big means. Do I think that there's enough of a benefit from higher intensity? Again, I'm not just talking about sprinting. I'm talking about something higher than just walking, which again is all the way on the low intensity side. Do I think there's enough of a benefit from doing something more intense than just walking, that you should strongly consider it. Yes, I do. Do you need to do a ton of it? No. Um, but yeah, I think there's enough meat on the bone in terms of health benefits at doing, you know, with doing something that's slightly more intense than walking that you should very strongly consider it. Yeah, even if you lift and yeah, even if you get a lot of steps. And I've talked about this in, in my newsletter and in other podcasts where, you know, I understand that when the more I talk about cardio, the more people feel like, oh my God, here's another thing I have to do. I just got into the routine with four days lifting. I got my steps up and now there's another thing I have to do. I have to do this zone two shit or I got to do these intervals or, yeah, I hear you. I, and man, am I sympathetic to that? I deal with my one-on-one -on -one clients all the time who are interested in this and they're, you know, they're already maximizing their weekly allotted time to train and now here I have another thing that they have to do. I would say if there are two kind of, lower entry point ways of getting in some higher intensity cardios, here they are. Number one, if you get on a piece of cardio equipment, a bike, a Stairmaster, a treadmill, something that's not a nice walk outside, go faster. Like just go, there's no difference. Well, not no difference, but it's very easy to modulate pace on those things. And I would recommend if you get on a piece of cardio equipment, try going a little faster. That's it. I'm not saying fucking sprint. I'm not saying you got a hashtag excuse me, got a hashtag, crush it, do intervals, whatever. Just just try to go a little faster. A, a little faster, if you usually walk at a 3.5 and now you walk at a 4.0, that automatically might check some of these boxes. You might get your heart rate up from, it was at 100, 110, you might get it up to 125, 130. And doing that a couple times a week, if that's what you do, if that's your routine already, that that probably has some, gosh, I gotta be, you know, kind of uh, um, tread softly with the word choice. But I'd say that's worth doing. Um, Another way to do it, whether you're on a treadmill or outside, is to throw in a couple surges. It doesn't need to be structured. doesn't need to be some super structured interval workout. Here's what you do. Let's say you're walking outside, but you can do this on a treadmill or a bike or Stairmaster or whatever. You go for your walk outside and you say, okay, I'm going to jog until I get a little tired. Not dead, not on the floor dying, just I get a little tired. I'm going to jog until I get a little tired. All right, that's going to get your heart rate up. When I get a little tired, I'm just going to go back to walking and I'm going to walk until I feel fully recovered. When I feel fully recovered, I'm going to jog again until I feel a little tired. Then I'm going to walk until I feel fully recovered. And you're just going to do that for whatever amount of time that you were going to walk. And maybe over the course of time, those runs get a little longer. Maybe even they get a little faster because you're getting a little bit more fit. And what you've done now is you've added 
minutes per week spent at a higher heart rate at a higher intensity level, and that can be beneficial. And so if you do four surges of 30 to 60 seconds, you know, and you walk every day, right? Imagine you go for a walk every day. That's stacks, and that's actually not costing you any more time. It's, it's I gotta tell you, it, it actually makes it more fun because, I don't know, it just gives you something else to focus on. And, and yes, yeah, sometimes I don't wanna focus on anything. I just wanna go outside, listen to the birds, smell the trees, all that shit. But other times I like compartmentalizing where it's like, hey, like this is fun. Like I am doing something where I'm like going for a walk and then I'm jogging and then I'm walking and then I'm jogging and it's unstructured, it's auto-regulated. Um, it's like a modified fart-like workout. Um, which I find to be really great for people just looking to get a couple extra minutes of higher intensity cardio in per week. All right, what supplements or vitamins do you take? I have a post coming out of what my, let's say top tier, tier one supplements are. I have a podcast actually of this entire thing. I take, uh, I will say I take more supplements than I might recommend and I'll be blunt with you. It's because I get them for free. And so if I was paying for supplements, um, here's what I would take. And, And I'll give you my whole list and then we can talk about it. Um, I take a multivitamin, everything from Legion. Do I take anything not from Legion? Um, one thing sometimes. Uh, okay. So I take a multivitamin from Legion. I think it's the best. I'm not going to just like sit here and like blow Legion, but like Legion has, um, clinically effective doses of everything. No proprietary blends. I highly recommend them. You know, if you see a proprietary blend on a supplement, run, period. There are just plenty of good companies out there that are not trying to pull the wool over your eyes. Go get a company that is transparent, clinically effective doses, no proprietary blends, all that good stuff. And so that's Legion, awesome. I'm They sponsor me, so full disclosure, totally sponsored. Um, cool. I take a multivitamin, I take a fish oil, I take creatine, I take a vitamin D plus K2. Um, and to be honest, those would be my top tier, right? Creatine, multivitamin, fish oil, creatine, multivitamin, fish oil, and vitamin D. Now, now the vitamin D thing is an assumption that most people are vitamin D insufficient, but you should check your blood work. You should talk to your doctor before you hop on a supplement. I think those four, I'd bet most people are safe jumping into those, but yeah, check with your doctor. You should be getting blood work. You know, you can have toxicity levels of these of these micros and minerals. Um and so, yeah, you you don't want that, right? And so, yeah, vitamin D is cool and all, but having too much vitamin D also not good. Cool. Um, and you might somebody you might be somebody who works outside, already has a high vitamin D level, is outside a lot, and yeah, you might be sufficient, and you don't want to be in a high level toxicity. So, cool. Check with your doctor, please. Um, on top of that, I take Legion's Fortify, which is a joint supplement. Um, again, that is one that I I can't say is in the top tier. That's something I take because I, I get it for free. I also take their supplement Balance, which is a berberine supplement. Berberine is, ooh, ber- berberine might scoot itself into the top tier. It is a supplement that has been shown to help with glucose control. Not as, you know, it, not nearly as effective as some of the other pharmacological interventions that we have as far as glucose control, but, you know, shit, it, it, it's kind of scooting its way into consideration here. Um, you take it with meals, it can reduce the glucose glycemic response. It can help with glucose control. Uh, I think I have just fine glucose control and it's not something I would take if I wasn't getting it for free, uh, being totally transparent. But if I'm somebody who's struggling with that, you know, has high blood high blood sugar, high uh, A1C, fasting slash insulin, um, it might be, it, I would say, I would, I would suggest it, yeah. If I'm somebody who's already working on that because I'm already struggling on it, I'd throw berberine into the mix. The supplement's called Balance. Um, 
I don't take the probiotic. Um, I've tried taking the probiotic, and whenever I take a probiotic, I pay really close attention to whether I feel better or worse when I take it. Does my digestion feel better or worse? And if I feel nothing, then yeah, I won't bother with it. Um, and so I, I don't, but I think their probiotic, if I was going to go with one, is a great is a great probiotic. Um, but I would check and see if it's actually helping. You know, if I take a probiotic and you take a probiotic, totally different responses. Uh, my gut flora, your gut flora, my bacteria, your bacteria, totally different. If I dump a bunch of lactobacillus in your gut or in my gut, it's going to have a different response because of what the population of your gut and my gut already is. Uh, so give that, give that some thought. Um, what else? Is there anything else? I'll take glycine from, from thorn, uh, if I'm having trouble sleeping, um, Oh, and I take a, the magnesium from Legion. And again, that that because magnesium is something a lot of people are deficient or insufficient in, that's something that you can probably safely take a flyer on. But again, I would get your blood work checked, talk to your doctor. Uh, but yeah, I'm happy Legion came out with that with that with that magnesium because it is something a lot of people aren't getting enough of in their diet. Cool. And then I take protein powder, which brings us to the next question. Is protein powder three times a day too much? Trying to get enough protein in my day. There is no such thing as too much protein powder. Protein powder, and I'm not suggesting you eat only protein powder. I'm just saying there is no, I mean, it is a, it doesn't make any sense to say there's too much, you could have too much. It's just powdered food. It's literally just powdered food. It's almost like, hey, I'm having three glasses of milk per day. Is that too much? No. Like, you know, I think generally speaking, there's some benefit to diversifying your food intake, right? Different foods have different balance of, of micronutrients and minerals. And it's probably, you know, the word diversity across your food intake is beneficial. Do you need to like have a ton of, you know, are you missing out on a ton of micronutrients if you're doing this? No, but like if someone else is like, hey, I'm having my protein sources from eggs and fish and red meat and turkey and chicken and, you know, tofu and seitan and tempeh and, and you know, I'm getting like, you know, a lot from, you know, beans and, and all the, whatever, you know, whatever. Um, is that probably technically going to lead to a more... How do we phrase this? Is that probably going to lead to a more diverse um, amount of micronutrients and probably be beneficial? Yeah, but no, dude. If you're if you're going through periods of your life where you don't cook a lot or you're working a lot and this is super convenient, dude, do it. You're definitely not like there's no harm, you know, right? There's an opportunity cost, but there's no harm. Um, and so I wouldn't worry about this at all. I mean, God, most people should have be having a shake per day, and I, the reason I'm, I suggest that is because. Uh, it is such a convenient, easy, simple way to low calorie way to get some protein in. And yeah, most people don't have enough protein. Um, oh, am I going to do all these? Yeah. I love when you guys ask questions and I want to answer all of them so we can continue to encourage people to do that. So excuse me if I go a smidge quicker through these. Can switching from barbell to hex bar for RDL change how much load you can do? Yes. Um, when you do the hex bar, the, the weight is more in line with your center of gravity. Some people are going to do a little bit, be able to do a little bit more, you know, when they, especially when they have a neutral grip for some people's shoulders, that's going to be more comfortable, but I've seen people do more with barbell. Um, you know, for all reasons in the world, you probably wouldn't be able to do more with the barbell. I've seen people do more with the barbell. So keep an open mind. Just what you should know is, Hey, when I switch from barbell to hex or hex to barbell, Keep an open mind that the weight might change in either direction. That's what I'd suggest. Next, if my workouts have have more days off in between them as compared to your program for three days a week, but the workouts are getting done weekly, am I making less gains in hypertrophy? So essentially, if you do three workouts, let's say we'll take an extreme example of one person's doing Monday, Wednesday, 
Friday. So Monday on, Tuesday off. Wednesday on, Thursday off. Friday on, Saturday, Sunday off, off. The other person is doing Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday on, Thursday through Sunday off. Is one person going to make markedly better gains? I don't think so. If you had to bet, you'd bet on the Monday, Wednesday, Friday person just dividing up having rest days probably improves performance on your second and third workouts. But I'll tell you, man, I really don't think it's going to matter a whole lot. If these people extrapolate this out for like 10 years, I really don't think it's going to matter a whole lot. Doing three days a week, your third day is probably going to, when I say suffer, I mean be, you know, you're, you might show up a little bit tired, a little bit sore. Uh, and there are certain ways to organize this, to optimize this. But I, I got to tell you, you know, if both people are doing 150 workouts a year over 10 years, 1,500 workouts, I really got to tell you how you split them up across the week doesn't really matter, I bet. And if the, and if there's like guilt associated with needing to do it in a three-day pattern because that's what works best for your work schedule, you can just forget about that guilt and just train hard, get your 1,500 workouts in over the next 10 years. I promise you, you're gonna be happy with the results. Can you explain your comment which you made on Zoom, which was you know you're gaining muscle if you're gaining uh, weight? The question is without a surplus? No, no, no. Uh, So uh, we talked about this on Zoom. Is like, how can you know you're making gains? Um, And the long and short of the argument is if you're making progress in your lifts in the hypertrophy rep range over the long term, you can be pretty darn sure you're building muscle. Now, if you're doing that, you know, making gains, progressing on your lifts uh, uh, in the hypertrophy rep range over time, and you're gaining weight, in a surplus, right? It only can only gain weight in a surplus. So just so when I say gaining weight, that you that must mean in a surplus. Um, matter cannot be created or destroyed, right? You're not gonna like be in a deficit, but be gaining weight. Now, yeah, okay. There's there's other things that can cause weight fluctuations other than the the actual calories and food you're ingesting, the tissue that you fat tissue, muscle tissue you're accruing or losing. I'm with that. I'm just saying. If you think about somebody saying, "Oh, I'm gaining weight," assume that that's a surplus. Uh, so yeah, listen, if you're in a surplus, someone's like, hey, I'm in a surplus, right? I'm gaining weight and I'm getting stronger across all my lifts over the long term in the hypertrophy rep range. Am I building muscle? I'm betting the house that they're building muscle. Next, what are some red flags to look for in a coach? What do you suggest looking for when looking for one? So what are some red flags to look for in a coach? Mine might be different than yours because I don't know what your goals are. I... And, and there's like red flag. There's also like beige flag or whatever the hell TikTok kids say. Um, for me, there's a, I look for a lot of, a lot of buzzwords in content and, and I'm going to say some of the buzzwords and I want to be clear. Sometimes people are using them appropriately and they are less buzzwordy. But if I see a lot of gut health, hormone optimization, um, you know, leaky gut, fix your hormones, reverse diet to fix your metabolism. If someone's talking about metabolism and hormones all the time in their content, that's a huge red flag for me. Um, that, that doesn't automatically mean that person is full of shit, but it, it, to me, it shows um, that's not where I would want as a coach, me, I, it's not where I want my clients to be focused. That's not where I want their headspace to be, uh, fixing my metabolism, fixing my hormones. I want them focused on lifestyles, uh, lifestyle interventions, lifestyle adjustments, habits, foundational stuff, you know? And you can, 
you, if you're listening to this and you're one of these people who talks about all this stuff on your social media, I'll tell you, oh, well, that's what I talk about once I get them to be my client. It's like, I hate that approach then. That's a red flag for me that you're not being open and transparent about what you're all about. You're using, you know, and I get that there's some element of like giving people what they, you know, want to give them what they need. I'm with that on some level, but this to me takes it too far. So for me, a lot of buzzwords, reverse dieting, fix your metabolism, hormones, gut health. Um, you know, if you're talking about, uh, toning or, you know, special, special ways to work out. If you're making it seem like you have the special fix, the special answer, um, those are a lot of red flags for me too. Um, to be honest with you though, guys, follow people on social media and get to know them. When I say get to know them, I mean, get to know who they are on social media, which is not always who they are, but see if they're genuine, genuine, being genuine and and speaking in a way that you know that they have that tone, that this is who they really are. Yeah, of course, everyone, you know, it's possible to hide that, but that's something I look for is being genuine, being who you are on social media, who you are on your podcast, who you are on your stories, and getting to know them that way. Finding somebody that that you vibe with, that speaks in a way that you nod along with. People who hire me as a coach, I think they, I hope they already kind of know what I'm about. You know, they, they're like, oh, this guy talks in a way that resonates with me. He talks about stuff that resonates with me. Uh, he communicates in a way that resonates with me. And so I would try my best to get to know people and, and pick somebody that you vibe with, that you connect with, even if it's a one-way connection for now, right, on social media. Um, you know, you can also look for somebody who has experience dealing with people who have your goals. I think that there's a pretty low bar there. It's like, because you can see people all the time with like before and afters and, um, you know, that doesn't really help. Next, is it, is consistent exercise order important? Busy gym, so jump around based on availability. Um, I don't think it's that important. I do think that it has a benefit though. You know, I think if you, um, it gives you a better opportunity to have an apples to apples comparison from week to week in terms of, am I progressing in this lift? But if you can take that into context, I think it it matters less. And what I mean is if you normally do your dumbbell press first and next week you do it last, you should suspect to be weaker. You should expect to be weaker. And if you can know that, then I think it matters less. If you did 888 last week and you do 888 this week, I don't want you to be bummed. If you did it last this week and you did it first last week, well then shit, this week doing 888 in the last slot is awesome progression. So if you can keep that in context, I think it matters less. Um, Yeah, exercise order matters in a binary sense, but it doesn't matter so much. And if you're in a busy gym, I would rather you change the order to something that works for you than ditch it altogether. Cool. Um, didn't progress on a lift for three weeks. Stuck at the same weight and reps. Any suggestions? Uh, my first suggestion is to stay with it. Three weeks ain't shit. Um, but uh, it could be right. It could be the the. It could be that you've kind of plateaued on this lift a little bit. I would say that there's no such thing. That if you just, for the most part, if you have your recovery variables, your nutrition, you eat enough protein, enough carbs, enough calories, you sleep enough. You know, you're going to show up to the gym and generally progress, even if it's really slowly. So I would say. Three weeks ain't shit, comma. um, Maybe uh, it's time to swap that movement out. Maybe that movement has gotten a little stale. And when it comes time to build your next program, deload, all that stuff, maybe you want to swap for something else. Maybe you want to change rep ranges. Maybe you've been working in the 10 to 15 rep range and it's time to try the 8 to 10 or the 6 to 8 or the 4 to 6. Uh, And that might be a good way to um, 
could, you know, find some, you know, discover some progression, you know, but I even think that one isn't, it's not a big one. It's almost like, it's almost like just making you feel better, but I even think that that's worth it. Um, it could also mean, hey, I'm trying to do this without ever gaining weight and I'll level with you guys. If you were to graph out your strength progression, it's going to be really steep in the beginning. You're going to get a lot stronger very quickly and then it's going to level off. It's going to plateau over time. It's going to slow down. If you never, ever, ever, ever do a surplus, you won't infinitely, infinitely, infinitely get much stronger over time. You know, there's no way that you're going to never be in a surplus and get really, 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 really strong. And so, yeah, if you're somebody who's like, I'm, uh, you know, stuck on a lift and it's like, okay, like how long you stuck on it? I don't know, a couple, like three or four mesocycles. It's like, maybe we swap it. Maybe we change rep ranges, but maybe, yeah, you're expecting a rate of strength increase that's only available to you if you go into a surplus at some point. Indoor, car- next question. Indoor cardio with knee injury. What's the best ROI? Walking in an incline, assault bike, or rower? The- whatever doesn't hurt your knee, dude. Indoor cardio with knee injury, best ROI it- in terms of what? In terms of calories burned, in terms of fitness, in terms of soreness, in terms of impact. Dude, all of those are great, by the way. Incline walking, assault bike, rower, amazing. All fantastic. Do the one that doesn't hurt your knee. Um, the rower is the only one that that has a, a slower cycle rate, right? Like if you row, um, yeah, and I, I, what's the implication? What does that matter? I don't really think it matters a whole lot. So I would pick the one that 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 you can do without pain. Next question. Do you need to eat at maintenance daily or can it average throughout the week? It can average throughout the, re- the week. Done, deal, close the book. That is the answer. It. What matters is calories over time. Like if you think about this, Gaining fat and losing fat is always happening 24-7. This doesn't work on a daily scale. It doesn't work on a weekly scale. It's working all the time. And so average calories over all the time is what matters. Now, yeah, we like to compartmentalize things into weeks because that's how we work, right? And that, that's something that just like fits with our brain and, and just the rest of our schedule. And so, yeah, average weekly calories. But it's also average daily calories, average monthly calories, average yearly calories, average minute calories, right? It's, it's always happening. And so, yes, it can average throughout the week. Now, I would say that there's probably some benefit in terms of recovery and performance to not having your highs be too high and your lows be too low, right? The closer we can bring those to static calories, the more consistent you'll feel in terms of energy and performance. Um, But if people have some higher days and some lower days, and it's not like you're fasting for three days and then having three days worth of calories on on Thursday, yeah, okay, outside of extreme scenarios, it's going to be just fine. And the next question, can lifting heavy weights cause or contribute to uterine prolapse? Ooh, I'm not the best person for this question. It is something I'm learning about right now just because obviously that's something to think about, you know, in the in the, in the the pre-slash-pregnant-slash-postpartum uh, time. Um, so I'm definitely not the person to ask. I think it can, I think, but I would really want to do more research on this. Um, prolapse is absolutely something that I'm still in the midst of learning a bit more about and, and, and just what are the implications in terms of lifting. So check back with me. Uh, I know, I know who asked this question, check back with me and, and, uh, check back with me by the time Jenna's pregnant, uh, or Jenna is, uh, in labor and I promise I'll have a good answer for you. All right. Thanks for asking questions, guys. I'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of where optimal meets practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. 
If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram at Jordan Lips Fitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.